Returning to the program uh, is is our, our our oldest friend on KDVS, Dr. Andy Jones, purveyor of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. Welcome back, Dr. Andy. I'm very happy to be back on Radio Parallax, Dr. <laughs> Doug. And of course, we're delighted to have you. We mentioned on our program a couple weeks back that we were going to test some experts about uh, these rules of thumb we were putting out there, and we dug a few up and want to run some of these past you. All right, I'll, I'll do my best, depending on uh, the topics of these rules of thumb. Let's see what you got. Well, there were several of them I thought that, that you would in some way have an opinion on, so I, I, I carefully chose them. For starting with academia, you, of course, are part of the English department at UC Davis, so I wanted to pose this one. According to the Rules of Thumb book, inviting more than 25% of guests to a university party from the economics department ruins the conversation. Well, I'd like to question your premise right from the start, and that is the oxymoron of a university party. <laughs> Those are two words that don't really go together very well. When I throw a, a party and I'm inviting university people, I let them know right off the bat that there should be no indication at any time what department or program they represent. And uh, I'm sure that, that what's said there about the economics department may be true, but it's true of a, of a great number of departments. Of all the years of uh, party throwing that I've done, I found that only two departments really represent themselves well, and that would be uh, technocultural studies and African-American studies. All the rest, I, I might just leave them off the invitation list. Fair enough, and I would like to add my two cents that a party full of doctors is generally something that you may not want to go to. Well, <clears throat> under no circumstances do I want to be in a, a room with white walls that's filled with doctors. That's certainly true. <laughs> well, you're a wise man. Uh, all right, here's one on meetings. I'm sure you have to attend a few. Uh, there is a rule of thumb that said the productivity of a meeting is inversely proportional to the size of the group when more than four people are involved. I'd say that's generally true just because in my field of academia, the, the meetings are so painful. <laughs> I would say to just let the majority of the group know via email what the three most creative people from the group came up with, and that if they have objections, then they could attempt to be one of the three most creative. It really uh, saves hours of discussion, perhaps not as democratic, but uh, better solutions and uh, less painful work days. <laughs> Well, here's one on books, uh, a subject near and dear to your heart, I'm sure. It's alleged that 10% of bookstore customers buy 90% of the books, but 10% never buy anything. Well, I'm not sure how old that rule of thumb is. It's one of the great sadnesses of the last decade that people increasingly aren't buying books, well, A, at all, <laughs> or B, from uh, bookstores. Ah. Here in the city of Davis, we've got a, a great independent bookstore uh, left called Sweetbriar Books, which is on G Street over by the Davis Co-op. There are a great number of independent bookstores in Sacramento. But I'd say that uh, if we were to throw out percentages, 80% of Americans don't read books. And I'd say that 90% of those few people who do read books tend to buy them online. For me... The used bookstore is one of the great pleasures of life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that statistic. 
Well, let's talk. Uh, let's talk film. Uh, your father, I think we mentioned some time ago in this program, was actually a television film critic in Washington D.C. So I'm sure that's a subject near and dear to your heart as well. That's true. According to this rule of thumb, it, when it comes to the movies, ten seconds is quite a long shot. Three seconds is quite short. I'd, I'd say that's that's pretty accurate. Almost a statement of fact rather than a, a rule of thumb. I've just TV'd a movie called uh, Rope, where uh, the entire Hitchcock film is one long shot. And so I'm going to test my 21st century attention span to see if I can actually watch this movie in one sitting. That, that is a very good movie, as I recall. I saw it many years ago. It's, it's, quite, it's quite good. It did have two reels. And so the way that they did that is that there was a pan across a room. And at one point, you see someone's back. And so the screen goes entirely black for just that second. And it was during that second halfway through the movie that Hitchcock knew he had to set up a place where the reels could change in the projection booth. Right. And so that's why it's set up that way. Very, very ingenious. But I, after I read that rule, I was watching a few films on, on TV, and it, it did strike me that even in the MTV era where quick cuts are, are celebrated, that uh, three seconds was, was rather short. It is, but you probably watch much more sophisticated uh, films, perhaps even foreign films, compared to uh, many Americans. Not compared to many KDBS listeners, who, of course, are a cultured lot and who know how to support culture when the time comes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, here's a simple one on conversation that, that, I, that I just love. According to the Rule of Thumb book, when asked an important question... Always pause for at least a silent count of three before answering to appear more thoughtful and intelligent. I don't know that the people that I generally talk to could ever uh, wait that long <laughs> because uh, I would lose them. You know, if, if someone, if I paused for more than three seconds uh, after someone asked me a question, I think they would forget the question by the time I would start speaking. So it's, it's got to be a little bit more rapid fire even with uh, dry academic types. All right. Well, uh, speaking of academic types, and we, were, we started out talking about uh, entertaining. Let's close with entertaining as well. According to the rule of thumb book, one should not invite a habitual raconteur to a party if the space is less than 600 square feet, not counting the piano. Otherwise, it will be hard for people to escape him or her without leaving the party. Right. Well, uh, a raconteur, as I'm sure your listeners know, is a a storyteller. Uh, traditionally, the word means a, a great storyteller. Often we mean now a Cliff Clavin type who will corner people with uh, facts and narratives that they don't want to hear about. <laughs> what I do is, if, if there's a great storyteller at one of my parties, I give him or her a microphone right at the start. <laughs> Say, all right, what do you have? Let's hear it. And then after he's done with his story, I turn off the microphone <laughs> and I shush him for the rest of the night. Wow. And, and leave it at that. I'd also like to add... That's a that, bold stroke. Yeah. Well, um, you know, someone's got to do it. That's <laughs> why people come to my parties. Though uh, I must add that neither I nor anyone I know really has a piano. And I tend not to entertain on the sets of uh, Woody Allen films. I don't know about... Uh, People you hang out with, Dr. Doug, but uh, it's, it's not quite written for my pay scale, I think, this uh, book about rules of thumb. Yeah, that, that one with the, that piano one sort of does strike, strike one like a Fred Astaire movie or something. If, 
if only more of us had pianos, bigger pianos and smaller uh, TV sets. I think it'd be a great idea. Uh, I, th I think so. Well, I think you've I think you've given us some uh, some thoughtful commentary on these rules of thumb. They are they, that's what they are. They're rules of thumb, and they they, they do have uh, some value, but they need to be uh, taken perhaps with a grain of salt. I think you're right, <clears throat> Doug. I think we need actually a rule of thumb to determine how many grains of salt are necessary <laughs> when examining a rule of thumb. Doctor Annie, thank you for uh, for 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 talking that through with us. We do want to talk about our English language. We were talking, uh, I was reading the, uh, something about George Orwell's politics in the English language and how language influences how we actually think. And uh, that's a topic we should return to, you know, in, in, in the months to come. I studied that essay with uh, Christopher Ricks, the, who's currently the Oxford professor of poetry at Oxford University, and uh, learned a great number of things, not only about the language, but about that essay. And I'd be glad to uh, share that with you and your listeners at some future Thursday afternoon. All right. Well, that's a date. We will, we will call you back uh, next month, and we'll do that. Thanks, Doug. Good to hear from you. Dr. Andrew, always a pleasure. Take care. music you just heard was the uh, the wonderful theme from Lawrence of Arabia, the 1962 Oscar winner. That theme was composed by Maurice Jarret, who passed away last week at the age of 84. The French-born composer won Oscars for several of his evocative scores, including David Lean Epic's, uh, uh, in addition to Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Shivago, and A Passage to India said fellow film composer John Williams, Mr. Jarre is to be remembered for his lasting contribution to film music. His collaboration with David Lean produced truly enduring music that is beloved by millions, and we all have been enriched by his legacy. Said film historian John Burlingame, Mr. Jarre's work on Lawrence of Arabia solidified his relationship with David Lean so that the director did not work with another composer again in his feature films. Jure won a second Oscar for Lean's 1965 film, Dr. Shivago, the hauntingly, memorial, the hauntingly memorable Laura's theme, which became one of the decade's most popular tunes. Jure won his third Oscar in 1984 for the film, A Passage to India. Said John Burlingame, Jure was a pioneer in using electronic music in films, which of course is now commonplace. He was known for his astute use of ethnic instruments to evoke exotic locations, whether it was Indian lutes in The Man Who Would Be King, or balalaikas in Dr. Shivago, or the Middle Eastern instruments in, used in Jesus of Nazareth. Maurice Jarret, he was one of the greats. All right, I mentioned in last week's program there was some data about honeybees I couldn't put my hands on. Well, I got my hands on them now. Article in Science Magazine talked about different forms of pollination. We mentioned in last week's show that honeybees appear to be making a comeback. But uh, what struck me was that for some reason, honeybees are not good for pollinating America's production of squash plants. In fact, 81% uh, of those plants are pollinated by native bees. Not exactly an earth-shattering factoid, but a curious one. Speaking of vegetables, we would note that Michelle Obama broke ground on a plot for vegetables in the White House grounds uh, last week. 
She's hardly the first White House gardener, however. John Adams apparently defrayed the cost of feeding guests with his own vegetable garden. And First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt's vegetable garden in World War II helped inspire 20 million victory gardens, which actually allegedly produced 40% of the nation's produce. To having grown up in the country where having gardens in the back and growing your own crops was just so second nature, I've always felt sorry for you kids who grew up in suburbs. That doesn't preclude, of course, of course, having a garden in your backyard. And these are these are big business now. A lot of folks are talking about doing it. A lot of folks are doing it in urban areas. And I, I would encourage you to do likewise. And speaking of the growth of things, uh, off the Hawaiian Islands, someone decided to, to evaluate how old some of these uh, coral colonies were. And boy, did they get a surprise. Apparently beds of gold coral and black coral, which uh, grow at, at depths of about 500 meters off the Hawaiian seabed um, get about, you know, several meters tall. That's that's many yards uh, for those of you who are metrically challenged. But apparently these, these coral polyps secrete a thin layer of calcium carbonate onto their bases, and that was used to estimate how old they were. Turns out, however, that um, they were wrong. What they thought to be annual growth rings actually take much longer to form. This revision came about using high-resolution radiocarbon dating, which was able to uh, effectively date carbon produced during nuclear tests in the 1950s. And uh, to get to the punchline here, it turns out that these corals are as old as Egypt's pyramids. Yes, apparently checking the, the ages on this gold coral's basis showed them to be about 2,700 years old, whereas the black coral was 4,265 years of age. Unfortunately, black coral does turn up a lot in jewelry, and now that we know how long it takes to replenish itself and how slow-growing it really is, we may need to, uh, we may need to restrict uh, their trade. Looks like we're up against it on time, so we'd like to thank Charles Seif and acknowledge that this program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.